Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. Uh, I want to start with, with reading uh, a koan this morning which I rather like. Uh, uh, it's, it's meant to set the tone for, for the talk. Whether I'll get back to it, uh, we'll have to see. But it's case 10 from the Blue Cliff Record. And those of you that have cameras, how do you stand this? The Blue Cliff Record collection of koan, and it's called Mujo's Thieving Phony. Uh, which I think is worth reading for the title alone. And it's about, um, uh, without uh, spoiling it all, it, it's about trying to find a strategy for the practice and uh, it not working. Mujo asked a monk, where have you come from? And the monk shouted. Mujo said, I've been shouted by you at once. And again the monk shouted. Mujo said, after two, three, four shouts, then what? And the monk had nothing to say. And Mujo hit him and said, what a thieving phony you are. Okay. Wonderful story. Wonderful story. Okay. So we live our life in, uh, broadly speaking, two uh, modes. One is the contracted mode where we feel we are the center of the universe and our troubles are the paramount form of reality and everything else is slightly at a distance. And the other is the connected self, where, where there doesn't seem to be a problem, where there isn't that sense of separation and contractedness um, and, and, and that fascination with one's own self and life, problems and delights and so on. And we, we move between these two in, in a kind of a natural way. The, the contracted self, um, from experience, seems to be driven primarily by a kind of circular form of self-referring thinking. Uh, and the emotion that often goes with that, of course. And that kind of 
endless commentary and judgment and uh, so on is, is, seems to be absent sometimes when our wider self uh, appears. And they both are, in a way, uh, a natural aspect of our life. But the contracted self has a sense that uh, things are, are not that great. So what the Buddha calls suffering. Um, a sense of not being good enough. And in a, in a way, although one can feel quite tender about not feeling good enough, it's a pretty realistic assessment, I think. Uh, yeah, when I'm contracted and, and separated and self-involved uh, and limited in that way, uh, in a sense, I, I'm not good enough. I feel not good enough. And it's pretty correct. And my sense is that we really owe it to ourselves to be more than just that. That we are, uh, in the last resort, more beautiful than that, more gentle, more kind, more wise, and, and greater. So, the sense when we are contracted of, of longing for a, a greater life, or longing for something more whole, or whatever words we put to it, th that sense is, is perfectly natural as well. And... So we have this contracted self with its longing, and then from time to time, boom, some other uh, breadth of life appears. And I, I'm, I don't need to give you examples, but, but here are a few from, from Poplar Grove, just for fun, really. One is that when it starts getting cold and people are going to the zendo in the morning, um, the conversation is about how early it is, how cold it is, how badly we slept, how frozen the water taps are, and everyone has the huddled posture and a deep sense of reluctance as they stagger through the door. Then we bow and we chant, and as we do it, and we sit, of course, uh, as we do that, um, some th the primacy of that uh, life of complaint seems to uh, drop in level, not never completely, absolutely absent, but uh, it seems to drop in intensity. And when I see people walk outside into the equally cold morning an hour later, uh, there's a sense of, of uh, 
delight. Uh, and if that's overstating it, at least some sense of, of ease and, ah, coffee, and off they go and dash off and have breakfast. But what strikes me most about that uh, is the the change in body posture and the reflected sort of mental attitudes. And then as we start forgetting ourselves in the chanting, bowing and zazen, so, so our self, our life naturally widens out um, without us sort of thrashing it or kicking it to make it happen. There it is. Another uh, thing that, that strikes me sometimes is that when people gather around a table and start talking, how easily the, the conversation can become quite sort of uh, judgmental and uh, habitual and automatic and the complaints appear or the anecdotes appear to show certain things in a certain light or certain people in a certain light. And sometimes a, a mean-spirited kind of agreement seems to appear. And then later in, in the night maybe one lies in bed and... and there's a sense of, oh, I, I, I was a bit unkind. I was a bit unfair. I, I wasn't the person I could be. I got sort of dragged into some uh, slightly venal gossip that I, I, I can do more than that. I can do more than that. And then immediately one's, one has a sense of, of the, the, the breadth of our life that, that is possible and how we sometimes just fall back into a, a kind of habitual complaint. Um, another example um, is... The one that, that Marg, you referred to earlier, that everything's gone wrong in this place recently. The power, even though we don't have load shedding, and I really sympathize for the difficulties you all go through. Oh, there's another point that I, I've suddenly realized that, that people come here often and s complain about load shedding, and then they say, but you know, when it happened, I just suddenly realized that I could light a candle and be quiet, or I could go for a walk. Uh, that's if the load shedding was in the day, of course. Or it was actually quite relaxing after all. And... Uh, I actually spoke to my wife for the first time in 17 years. Um, so, the, you know, that sort of process is happening. But anyway, where I was meant to be heading is that everything's gone wrong. Power, batteries, uh, weather, wind, water, uh, 
connectivity, internet, cell phone, cars. and cars, all the vehicles in the, in, in the premises of all that, uh, that sort of thing. And especially when retreat is coming, I get terribly anxious. And I want everyone to be able to come. I want everyone to be able to have water, gas, um, candles. <laughs> and when the weather goes bad, I need to fetch them from town. And when I need to fetch them from town, I need to be able to call them in some way. And when that all falls apart, I, I get anxious and desperate and feel I'm letting the whole world down especially people who've traveled so far and are hovering around the restaurants and pubs of Colesburg <laughs> waiting for a lift, um, which sometimes doesn't appear. And I lie awake one night, I lay awake in the middle of the night and uh, was just, didn't know where to go and was so desperate and suddenly I had this, this vision of this universe as a great unfolding process uh, of, of boundlessness. And me and Margie and all our friends and family as, as part of it and in that greater context, my struggle to try and make the universe suit me and fit my needs and answer my particular angst just <coughs> fell away. It fell away all by itself. And the relief was enormous. I... I leant over and kissed my wife and uh, it was just uh, a lovely illustration of what happens in this life of practice by which I don't mean to imply that it only happens to people who are Zen students <laughs> far be it from that uh, but that's a natural way of our life. And our practice, what we call our practice, is about finding our most natural and resonate and ringing uh, life. Another lovely example, and uh, I know I'm stressing the point perhaps over much, but I just want to tell you about this, is that we had a little baby boy here with us on retreat, one of our informal Feltzen retreats recently, here for a week. And uh, his name is Aidan. And Aidan is about four months old. And Aidan's parents, uh, Megan and Mark, uh, brought him into the zendo every time we went there. And, you know, here we were all uh, trying to, here we all were, <laughs> um, 
doing our earnest Zen student bit of sitting and breathing and uh, paying attention. And the middle, in the midst of this, uh, there's this little baby kicking his feet and waving his hands wildly, gurgling, shrieking, farting, <laughs> and generally causing chaos in the zender. And everybody's heart just opened. And now, he wasn't uh, uh, an interruption or a distraction in the meditation. We just opened the meditation to include him. And that's what Zazen is. By definition, there's no such thing as uh, distraction. We just sit with a heart of generosity and the whole world is inside of it. Uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Anyway, I just really wanted to tell you about Aidan, who's our new Sangha member. <laughs> and it was lovely also to see how not only well, everybody who was here, but in particular the parents, just um, naturally uh, found their direction. Here's the baby. Okay. Nothing more to add. Okay, that's our life. Boom. Baby cries. Pick him up. Baby hungry. Give him to mommy. Very clear. No sleep. Okay. Sleep on the cushion. That's what cushion's for. Okay. Anyway, so I'm giving all these examples about the sort of move between a contracted self and a self that finds no problem in living this universe from edge to edge. But what we do in our contractedness is we uh, want to find a way to get to the other side. Okay, we've experienced these two modes of living, as it were, and now we want to devise a strategy so that we can be sure. Um, we take out a kind of living annuity insurance policy to make it clear that we can get to the other side, that we can go beyond ourselves, and that we'll be guaranteed of a successful result for all our great efforts and hard practice. And so that's what we do. We devise a strategy. We say, I'm going to go and do Zen practice at Poplar Grove, and I'm going to do so many hours of sitting, and I'm going to try and stay awake during the daily Dharma talk. I'm going to be sort of off to interview and get lost and humbled and embarrassed and tongue-tied. And at least 
I should get some reward for that which I call enlightenment or holiness or kensho or whatever word you, you, you get for that. And that's all an activity of contraction self. He's or she is scared that that depth of life may not be available. It may escape them. They may not find it again. They'll be left wandering uh, in, in the ghost lands, as they say. So we come to our Zazen and our Zen practice with a kind of a neediness and a kind of a, a secret strategy and a kind of a tactical plan for assault on heaven. And, and you, you can see this in some of the writing. People, wonderful friends, give me, give me things to read. And some of them are, are very traditional in the heart of the kind of Zen monastic uh, business. People say, this is the way to do it. You have to stay up all night and you have to uh, put a pin, a nail into your thigh to keep yourself from dropping off to sleep because sleep is where you, you um, the devil is and all of this sort of stuff. And you've got to have these kinds of, you've got to have the eight great experiences of what they call Sartori and the 18 minor ones and you've got to do this and you don't do it like those other guys that spend their time sitting on cushions like like logs of wood and they just wasting their time here come this way come 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 up and then you read uh, another book from somebody who says no need to do anything just hang around have a good time live your natural life Stop trying to do all this Zen practice and keep yourself awake at night. All of that. One of the famous uh, things that developed in the Zen tradition during uh, the Tang Dynasty in China um, was the shout. That somehow if you can shout well enough. Uh, it's an, an illustration of your uh, enlightenment, of your, of your oneness with everything. And in a way, a, a good shout is a fantastic thing. Um, not right now, maybe, but when you go out after this, um, give a good shout, it's a bit like a good cry. Or a good laugh. It has that uh, sort of quality about it. And then we come back to this uh, koan that I read at the beginning. Uh, Mujo, uh, Mujo's thieving phony. Uh, Mujo asked the monk, where have you come from? That's just a sort of opener question, like how are you or something. And the monk who'd been trained in the tradition of shouting, uh, shouted as an answer. That's trying to be clever. That's what, you, that's what you're taught to do. 
And Mo Chu said, I've been shouted at you. I've been shouted at by you. And the monk shouted again. And Mujo said, after two, three or four shouts, then what? <laughs> then what? Great question. And the monk didn't know what to say. And Mujo hit him and said, what a thieving phony you are. Okay, we all feel like that sometimes. Uh, but the interesting thing uh, is that we can't find a, a strategy for enlightenment. Let me just use that word for now. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't a linear process. It's not something that the mind with its language and concepts and neediness and hopefulness uh, can design. It's not a grid that you can impose upon your life. And uh, as this koan goes on to say, the process is, is, is different. Something else is, is, is happening here. And, and what is it? And in this beautiful line from the commentary to this koan, it says, As Master Shin of Wenglang said, when you reach an impasse, change. Having changed, then you are already through. It's not about the small me adding a strategy and getting a result. It's about something deep inside my being uh, being moved, uh, changing. And it's often in the body that this happens first out of sight of the thinking and analyzing mind, the body that connects and touches things. And, and then to, to the end of this, um, of this commentary, where it quotes uh, Master Shin saying, if you reach an impasse, change, and then you are already through, the commentary goes on to say, this is where the patriarchs cut off the tongues of everyone in the world. If you recognize the possibility of change, then when something is raised, you immediately know what it comes down to. So tell me, how will you see it? If you open your eyes, you see it. Even if you close your eyes, you can see it. Is there anyone who can avoid it? Is there anyone who can avoid it? So when we do our Zen practice, when we do whatever practice we, we have in this life, when we just do our life in the best way we can. When we, do, when, when we 
When we do our practice, we come with great innocence and purity. That's all we can bring. We don't bring our strategic self or our need or our sense of not being good enough. Uh, we, we do, of course, come with that. But we lay it down. We lay it down there. And in that moment, we truly don't know. We, in the sense of the thinking mind, there's nothing that we know. There's no strategy. There's no opinion we can have about ourself or our practice or about the state of the world. We come with bare feet. We come with innocence and a purity. And that's... That's our practice. And then inside of that, we take whatever appears. Of course, we have a sense that there's some connection between our sitting still and our greater self just as we have a sense this is a con connection between a beauty, a great painting, a beautiful movement, a great music, nature. All of these things we have a sense that there's some connection, but that's not a connection of achievement. It's just a scent of the connectedness that in fact we are all naturally part of and that we that we attain from time to time and that uh, we lose again and when our practice includes both of those modes of living we we are doing all we can to make this life precious. So when I think of uh, baby Aiden, uh, it, it, I, I'm struck by the way we we wish him well so instinctively, but that in a in a strange way we. What do I wish for him? I. I hope he grows tall and strong and he's healthy and he passes all his exams, has nice girlfriends, gets a good job, supports his parents and, you know, lives in the suburbs, has two carriages and so on. There's that sort of slightly absurd sense of what we wish for him. And we know the world isn't like that. But that's part of our natural uh, fondness and... Uh, so however absurd it might be. Uh, but really, uh, we wish him uh, the breadth of mind and heart that finds the world to be not like that and to have the 
breadth of embrace to take the world um, as it appears, however difficult the circumstances may be. And we know from our own selves that even that may not happen. That we don't find that breadth of acceptance and aliveness. And then there's no strategy. Then all we can say is that this deep and instant compassion arises in our hearts. Just that. And to the extent that we are able to take that mind and body into our life. That's, that's as much as we can do. And paradoxically, when we find that kind of, of fullness, our life uh, feels complete and full of grace. <laughs>